They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are very much diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 hours or 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head, one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 46, Close to Home. It's been a while since the last episode, a bit longer than I'd hoped, but the final big work projects of the year have been completed now, and so there's a few things to update you on. You'll remember we left the last episode with an interesting connection being made between John Jick's mother's maiden name and the man who married David Nathan's sister. They both shared the surname Farga. Quite an unusual name. A slight correction here, by the way. I said in the last episode that Robert Gilmore Farga married Enid Nathan. In fact, it was his son, Robert George Farga. But the connection, still an intriguing one. And that connection took another curious step forward a couple of weeks ago when I received an email from a listener called Nathan Wilkins, a very sharp-eared listener, who I'm grateful for pointing something out to me from a previous episode. He sent me an intriguing email that simply said it might be worth listening to episode 39 at the 2220 mark. Now, to set the scene, episode 39 was called A Glimpse Behind the Curtain. It featured our investigations into the wartime exploits of Frank Kuhn. But in that episode, I spoke to Zoe Kuhn. And this was before any deep dive into John Jick. I never spoke to her about John Jick, and certainly well before we were thinking about anybody called Farga. So, let's take a listen to what Zoe, completely unprompted, says. And I'm talking to her about a man called Varanka, who we'd seen on the electoral roll of Burton. And then she says quite an interesting thing. See if you pick it up. Trying to find Eastern European people who appear and then don't appear, if you get my drift. You know, so they're there for a year and then they disappear. Because one of them might be Fred. There's really only one person that kind of that kind of got through that process and we didn't find later on. And it's a man called Varanka. Right. It was an anglicised name. He had, his name was Ernest Edward Varanka, but it was anglicised in the same way Ferenc would have been anglicised to Frank. Ernie? Varka? Uh, anglicised it to Varka? Why? Does that ring any bells? I don't know. It just, it just popped into my mind. I don't know where it came from. Okay. Ernie Varka. Okay. I think a guy that worked at the mill. Ernie Varka. Now, that might be nothing, but Varka, Farga, of all the names she could have come up with, Zoe comes up with Varka. And if she'd heard that name from Frank in his 
Hungarian accent. Did Farga end up being pronounced by Frank as Varka? Now, is that anything? I honestly don't know. I've no idea whether that means anything at all, but as it was brought to my attention, I'm very pleased that it was as well, I thought I'd pass it on to you. It might be a complete red herring, but who knows, one day it might be the most important thing we've ever discovered. I get a lot of emails about the case, and there's one other that I wanted to bring to your attention, which also alludes to Frank Kuhn, specifically his wartime experience. It came from a listener in Zambia, of all places. Now, I promised I'd keep his identity hidden, but he writes, My uncle was Hungarian. He fought on the German side in World War II, and he was awarded the Iron Cross. He then escaped from Hungary via Vienna and Geneva after 1956. By coincidence, he also went to live in Australia in the 1960s because he felt unsafe living anywhere in Europe. His brother was disappeared from the streets of Vienna. At my uncle's funeral, the Hungarian's ambassador to Australia delivered a message of condolence saying that my uncle had been a significant player in Hungary's resistance to the Soviet invasion. Nobody expected this, and it was quite a thing. We look forward to your continuing efforts to get to the bottom of this mystery. Best wishes. Now, I went back and said, by the way, do you know anything about how your uncle survived the immediate post-war after the Russians overran Hungary and what was the fate, typically, of Hungarian prisoners of war. I asked that question specifically because Frank seemed to be given free reign to roam wherever he wanted to. I wanted to work out whether that was the norm or that was very much an exception. And he came back to me and said this. Dear Ken, thanks for the reply and to answer your specific question. My uncle was put into what he called a concentration camp. His words, not mine immediately after the war, and then eventually transferred to a civil prison, where he was held for several years because of his anti-Soviet war record, i.e. fighting for the Germans. He was eventually released from prison, then took part in the 1956 uprising before escaping to Geneva via Vienna, as we'd heard before. So that is interesting. And I suspect that's a much more typical experience for Hungarian soldiers who had been fighting for the Germans who now found themselves in the hands of the Soviet army. You were lucky to survive. If you did survive and you weren't sent back to the Soviet Union never to be heard of again, you ended up in concentration camps and in prison. There was something about Frank's relationship with the Russian army that meant he avoided that. The plot thickens in that area, I think. I've also been continuing my investigation on the Isle of Man, speaking to other people who were involved in that trip to Birkenhead that led to the disappearance of John Jick. And this has helped me more accurately piece together the key elements of the timeline. I spoke with a scout who was on that trip who had an extremely powerful recollection of that time and some of the things he mentioned has actually 
meant that I've changed that timeline slightly and I'll take you through that now I've read all of the newspaper reports and there are about 20 I know them off by heart now some though are quite contradictory about some of the key elements and I wanted to get this exactly right and I think the conversation I had with this man has helped me do that again I'm going to protect the name of that person often people will only open up to me on condition of anonymity and I have to respect that but this is what he said he remembers John Jick absolutely clearly short thin thin hands light mousy brown short hair thin in the face his teeth normal five foot seven five foot eight calm conversational smartly dressed in a suit a jacket and a tie and a coat on the way to Liverpool and John Jick clearly knew Liverpool really well he was describing to the scouts the skyline of Liverpool as the boat was approaching land on arrival John Jick took his car and a few of the lads and all the packs that they'd brought with them in his car through the Mersey tunnel to Birkenhead the remaining scouts took the ferry across the Mersey to the Woodhead terminal in Birkenhead and then made their way to Borough Road the scout HQ they all arrived they got their packs together they sorted things out they had their sleeping arrangements sorted out and by that time it was about 2 p.m. John Jick mentioned he needed to go to Liverpool to buy a retirement present for someone at the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company and he left about 2.15 in the afternoon which falls in line with the known timeline. The scouts were of course unaware of what was happening to John Jick in Liverpool. They were simply looking forward to the gang show. But yet again, here's an interesting thing at least to me. I'd always assumed, from what I've read in the newspapers, that the gang show was in Birkenhead. It wasn't. It was held that year, 1969, for the first time in its history in a very small village about three miles away from Birkenhead, a picturesque village called Port Sunlight, which probably means nothing to you. But it does to me, because as a six-year-old, that's where I was, about 300 metres away from where the gang show was held. Of all the places in the world that that could have happened, it happens down my street. It's strange. The scouts went to the gang show. All was normal, except at the end, when there was an announcement over the tannoy. Has anybody seen John Jick? The scouts had expected him to join them at the gang show. But of course, as we know, he never did. And of course he still wasn't there when the scouts woke up the next day or when they travelled back to Liverpool to catch the ferry back to the Isle of Man. But something was there as they made their way to the boat. Somebody saw John's car hey that's John's car someone shouted caused a great deal of excitement 
And I think it was then, and only then, that the car was identified. One of the scout leaders went over to the car, discovered it unlocked, with the blood on the passenger seat. And the person I was speaking to remembered very specific details about that car, John Jick's car. It was a brand new Mini Estate Blue. He even remembered the registration number, MMN11, which is an old registration, but MMN means it was made, or registered I should say, in the Isle of Man. But it was an old registration back in 1969, so probably a registration that it used on previous cars. But I'm pretty sure now that the car was only discovered the next day. That does appear in some newspaper reports, but there are other newspaper reports that say it was discovered at five o'clock on the Saturday. Don't think that's true. John Jick was only attacked around five o'clock on the Saturday. But there's a couple of other interesting memories that this man had. The man I'm talking to, together with four or five other scouts, were interviewed by the police once they got back to the Island Man. He was asked whether John Jick had ever accosted him or behaved in an inappropriate way. He hadn't. None of the scouts ever considered John to be anything but a kind and considerate man. The police also mentioned that John had made frequent trips to Liverpool and whether this man knew anything about that. They particularly mentioned the Stork Club, which was, as we know now, a place where a lot of gay men congregated. Now, the scouts had never suspected he was gay. In fact, they thought of him as something of a prude. A few months later, still in 1969, the scouts had another trip to England organised, a camping trip. Now, on that trip, for one reason or another, they were late getting back to the ferry. In fact, they missed the ferry. This witness's father said something interesting to him when he got back. You haven't been to see that queer fella, have you? He was talking about John Jick which implies two things. That it was, by that time, very common knowledge about John Jick's sexuality. But it also implies people thought he was still alive. One final memory, almost certainly irrelevant, but interesting contextually. In 1963, one of the assistant scout leaders tragically hung himself in one of the outbuildings of the scout group's meeting hall in Douglas. John Jig found the body and all the scouts were sent home. A tragic suicide, but one that probably left a very lasting impression on John Jig. Thanks for listening. There's a few things to update you on. As you may know, I'm no longer a member of the Facebook page. You won't be able to contact me there. But of course, you can always contact us by email, fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. I'll make sure that email's in the show notes. And every day, there's always a couple of emails arriving from all over the world. And as we've seen in this episode, we receive some fascinating information that way. We have, however, been working on something. 
a website www.fredthehead.info and that address will be in the show notes and a huge thank you to the wonderful Magdalena Ruta for all the work she's done on the website I'm really delighted with it and there's lots and lots of information about the case there including the main characters that we've been looking into over the years he also includes a blog site where I'll be able to answer any of your questions about any aspect of the investigation so that's www.fredthehead.info put it in your favorites or bookmark it and if you want to contact us through there you can email us at the website and the email address for that is contact at fredthehead.info contact at fredthehead.info now a couple of things to mention uh, a quick shout out to a guy called Steve Fletcher uh, who owns a YouTube channel Steve the Transit Camper I met him at the Fred the Head meetup he's put up a great video of his trip to Burton a few months ago when we did that uh, event lovely fella and I'm sure quite a few new listeners have come our way through his YouTube channel so thanks Steve but uh, if you were somewhere else in the world it might give you a good idea of of what happened on that day it's a great record of that day I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes right where were we last week I had an interesting conversation with a man called Mick Huff Mick is a vicar in Surrey in the south of England but it was interesting because Mick Huff is Peter Huff's son and Peter Huff was the lead detective on the case back in 1971 he's the man you often see in pictures holding the skull or making statements to the newspapers and appearing on the TV talking about the case very sadly Peter Huff died a couple of years ago obviously with the case still unsolved and I personally always regretted never having had the opportunity to meet and speak with Peter and there is absolutely no doubt Peter Huff was a thorough meticulous detective who had a excellent career in the police service you get a sense of his personality I think when you watch the ATV interview from back in 1971 a link to which is on the website Mick was very aware of the case he was 10 years old when it happened his father of course was the lead detective but his father was always very careful to delineate work and family careful not to discuss the details of his cases over the dinner table and with good reason Peter Huff was dealing with some very serious and violent crimes definitely best kept away from the children but this case was different the inability to solve it satisfactorily was clearly a source of frustration and curiosity to his father his father thought about this case a great deal long after his police work took him into even more serious cases including the kidnapping and murder by Donald Nielsen of Leslie Whittle in 1975 but he never quite forgot Fred but Peter Huff didn't know him as Fred Peter Huff knew him as Albert he kept the skull in a velvet lined brown leather case kept it close to hand in one of the drawers of a metal filing cabinet in his office Mick remembers one Christmas 
going to his father's office to wrap Christmas presents and his father told him to take a look at what was in that case. It was the skull, Fred's skull. Mick Huff is one of the very few people to have held that skull. Peter Huff retired in 1983. Sadly, there were no original papers retained by Mick's father, Peter. Mick cleared his office after his death and there were no police files. Again, an indication that Peter kept work and family very clearly separated. We talked about the case. Mick is an avid listener to the podcast and he mentioned that his father was a naturally curious, almost suspicious man. He could sense a lie very easily. One line that Mick remembers is in relation to what his dad used to say when people emigrated suddenly. His father often used to say, I wonder what they're running from. Now, I'm not even sure that Peter Huff knew of Frank Kun's existence, but I'm pretty sure he would have been asking, I wonder what they're running from. We also discussed something that I've always found intriguing and we've never really discussed it before and it comes from the book that Michael Posner wrote. Mick is also aware of that book. In fact, he remembers the process. Michael Posner and his father had regular telephone conversations when that book was being written and at least once Michael Posner came to the house. Now the thing in that book which is so interesting is a statement which was reputedly made by Keith Mant, the home office pathologist, in which Keith Mant suggested that there were indentations in the bone near the top of the shoulder. Keith Mant is reputed to have said, if you ever solve the case, ask him what he hit him with. Now, we know that book is largely drawn from conversations between Michael Posner and Peter Huff. So that statement is likely to have come from Peter Huff. And it's important because it implies that there were injuries and that those injuries were relevant to the death of Fred. But there's a major problem with this evidence in that it appears absolutely nowhere else. Not in any newspaper reports, it's not in the coroner's report, it isn't referred to in the TV report. In fact, most cases, they are at pains to point out the lack of clear wounds on the body. But here we have the Home Office pathologist talking to the senior detective saying there were injuries. Peter Huff has a reputation, still, for being a thorough meticulous, accurate detective. And I don't think Michael Posner would have simply fabricated that statement. And I don't believe Peter Huff would have fabricated that either. How much importance do we attach to that? This reputed statement that appears in the book that must have come from Peter Huff about there being damage, indentations in the bone at the top of the shoulder. Of course, there are only very few police officers still around who are active on the case. Mick does know some of his father's colleagues who are still with us, and he's promised to try and put me in contact with one of his father's very closest colleagues. And that'll be very interesting, particularly if Peter Huff 
confided his private thoughts on the case to his colleague. So I'm very grateful to Mick for getting in contact. And of course, I'll keep you posted if we can progress things in this area. So where next? Well, I know where next is for me. And that's the Isle of Man. Next week, I'm flying over to the island for a few days just to meet up with a few people that I've spoken to in relation to John Jick and take the opportunity to dig through some of the newspaper archives concerning the disappearance of John Jick. There's a place called the Manx Museum which holds microfiche copies of all the local newspapers. I'll be in my element so I'm really looking forward to that. And sometimes just being in the local environment is just plain interesting. I can get to see the places that I've heard about and I'm excited about being able to do that. I'm also hoping, by the way, to meet with the Manx Constabulary. I've sent over all the details of the Fred the Head, John Jick connection to them. They seem pretty interested, so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to have a conversation with the Manx Police just to make them aware of this potential scenario. So... Our next podcast will focus on that and I'll definitely release it before Christmas and I'll be able to update you on anything that might turn up on the Isle of Man. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.